Hammer, please big warm welcome for Eddie Baker. It's been 10 years since Dodger died, and I'm still convinced he was the best cat of all time. And I feel qualified to make that judgment because I am what you would call a cat person. I am a person who is into cats. I just find them the most endlessly watchable, interesting animals to be around, even when they're being boring, which is, let's be honest, most of the time. Even then, they're fascinating to me. My Facebook feed is uh, just a flood of image posts from cat-based meme groups, uh, which actually washes away any chance I'll see genuine life updates from my friends and family. My Instagram account is just mostly pictures of my cats, um, and if I see a cat in the street, I'll just point at it and shout the word cat like some kind of massive overexcited toddler. So right now we have two cats. Their names are Vera and Onion. Um, Vera, she's a tiny white cat. She's uh, got very demure, almost regal air. Yet she is afflicted with farts I can only describe as hate crimes. <laughs> Onion is what you would get. This is the other cat. This is what you'd get if you stuck a pair of those novelty googly eyes on a chimney sweep's broom and then it was somehow able to give that broom a shitload of amphetamines. <laughs> Before Vera and Onion, um, we had Diva. It was a beautiful little ginger cat who loved cuddles and watching Match of a Day. And before Diva, it was Buddy, who was my then housemate's hulking bruiser of a black cat. But Dodger, Dodger was the one. So Dodger was our family cat. He was adopted as a 10th birthday present for my older sister. I was five years old at the time, and such is my memory in my advanced years. I can't really recall any childhood memories without Dodger being there. I grew up with him, and actually for large parts of my childhood and my adolescence, he was probably my best friend. Dodger got his name because when my dad and my older sister went to pick him up from a foster home, he was dodging <coughs> around the room frantically until he found himself dangling from the top of the living room curtains. His love for dangling continued into his new life with us when he quickly saw our dog, Shelley, as a convenient free method of transport around the house. <laughs> Dodger and Shelley were both the same uh, shade of deep black, so often we'd not actually spot this tiny wild-eyed kitten hanging from the ears of a very, very patient dog. Dodger was definitely a cat with a sense of opportunism. Such is the time he wandered home with an entire ham sandwich in his mouth. Or the time he found his way into my neighbour's house and he attempted to make off with their entire Sunday roast chicken. But the peak of his audacity was probably summarised one evening when I was peering out my window in the early hours of the morning and I was watching a fox leading her cubs down the street. And a blur of black suddenly shot out from underneath a parked car. And I watched in awe as my cat punched a baby fox in the face. <laughs> and then legged it to safety. <laughs> that is real pride, I felt. Yeah. Dodger's mischievous nature was easily forgiven simply because he was also an incredibly affectionate and loving cat. As a kitten, he'd sleep nestled in my older sister's hair. And as he grew up, he would alternate between all three siblings' beds. But God help you if you dared to shut him out of your bedroom on a night that he demanded cuddles. Dodger would take the charge in the door with his forehead a sort of furry Jack Nicholson from The Shining, but with snuggles instead of murder. As I got older, and I started to anticipate the awkward, lonely years of adolescence, Dodger's friendship became quite a source of strength. 
in my later years of primary school, unfortunately I was bullied. And the days, to be honest, were easier knowing that I'd get to hang out with him as soon as I got home and just watch all the kind of crazy stuff he'd get up to. And some days, as if he knew that I didn't like school, he would walk us most of the way to school in the morning. A lot of people say it's bad luck to uh, cross paths with a black cat, but for us, the day wouldn't start until we had. And as my late teens approached and I dealt with the stresses of school, exams, hormones, unrequited love, which was about weekly at that age, um, Dodger was always there to take your mind off things. I mean, sure, sometimes his method of distraction was to bring you a live mouse and then release it at your feet before immediately deciding it's your problem to deal with that. <laughs> but the thought was there. And to be honest, I was always you know, quite impressed by his prowess as a hunter, as well as the amount of fights that he would win against neighbourhood cats. It kind of meant that my cat, my dodger, he was the king of his domain. Like, how could I not be proud of that? So when I look back on growing up with Dodger around, I just keep thinking about how he kind of did everything you want from a cat. Like, he ticked all the boxes, you know, the affection, the aloofness, the sudden burst of unpredictability. He was just absolutely brilliant at catting. <laughs> Even his death was perfect. So I was 23, and I'd moved back home after university, just for a year or two. And it was great being back, you know, back home, back with my family. But really, it was great being around Dodger again. He was an old cat by now. He was 18 years old. And he was, you know, certainly slowing down. But he was still Dodger. He was still headbutting bedroom doors in pursuit of nighttime cuddles. He was still bringing mice into the kitchen and watching with amusement as my mum completely lost her shit. <laughs> it was a Saturday morning that he died. I was heading out somewhere. I can't really remember where. But um, my mum was in the garden, pretending to garden, I think. So I popped my head out of the back door just to say goodbye to her. And that's when I saw Dodger walking up the garden towards me. And he walked up to me and he let out a slightly confused meow, a kind of meow I'd not really heard before. And then one side of his face seemed to droop suddenly. And almost immediately, I kind of knew what was happening. I don't know if it was a stroke or whatever it was. I could just tell that he was kind of ready to go. So he walked into the kitchen and then he started limping a bit and then he flopped onto his side. Um, at the time, uh, my brother-in-law, he was working at Battersea Dogs and Cats Home in London. So he was quite experienced, kind of looking after animals, um, especially when they were sick. So my mum, she got in her car and she went to pick him up, thinking that maybe he could do something to help. But I kind of knew, you know, he's an old cat. Something wasn't right. I, I knew he was about to die. So as she went out, I just sat down on the floor next to him. And I put a hand softly on his side. And he lay there looking at me, letting out the occasional meow. He was breathing, uh, quickening at first, but kind of gradually slowing down. So you often hear of sick cats taking themselves away to die. And I think that's why a lot of old cats, they simply vanish one day, don't they? So I, I don't know, I guess it's like a defensive trait they've evolved where they head off somewhere secluded when they're at their most vulnerable. But our cat, our dodger, he decided to come back home when he knew his time was up. So as I sat there on the floor with him, watching his breathing and his breaths getting further and further apart, all I could feel was gratitude. You know, gratitude that I got to be there by his side as he went. Uh, gratitude that he spent his entire life, right up to the end, feeling loved and safe and comfortable. And gratitude that I had this little guy in my life right from my earliest memory. Um, my partner, Joan, and I, we have this concept of this sort of cat heaven 
Um, neither of us actually believe in any sort of afterlife, but we have this kind of strange, comforting idea of what we call the cat gang, which, I mean, this is actually Joan's idea, but I've, I've adopted it fully. Uh, the cat gang is a gang of all the cats that we've ever had, and they all get to hang out together when they leave this earth. So her childhood cats, uh, Freddy, uh, Katya, Percy, Mog, Small, they're all there. So a diva, Buddy, my mum and dad's first trio of cats, Scampy, Chips and Perno, they're all there. <laughs> See, I didn't, I didn't get the third one until I was a lot older. I was like, what was Perno? And I like to think that Dodge is there as well, looking after them all, bringing them roast chickens and ham sandwiches, teaching them how to hitch a ride off of Shelley's ears, showing them how to punch a baby fox in the face. As of the last week, 10 by 9 is now a company registered with the HMRC as an arts company. Ooh, that is very exciting. So, um, we have just seen over seven years such a growth in people's interest in 10 by 9 um, we've been doing some work in prison service as well going in and working with um, guards and uh, mental health workers and inmates in the prison service we've been seeing a great uptake in companies too that say Do you know instead of those mandatory fun days where everybody pretends that they're enjoying themselves how about we listen to some stories and so it's been great fun to work with different groups. We celebrated with the NHS their 70th anniversary and instead of having some people in suits get up, we got five people from across five different decades of the NHS to tell true stories from their own life. So it's great and we've just decided it's about time we thought, let's see if we can grow this. So on April the 13th, which is a Saturday morning, <clears throat> we're going to have a session which basically we've called a help session. And if you think, look, I've got a bit of help, I, I can give you a bit of a help in some of the company management or a bit of social media or a little bit of website design or fundraising or, do you know what, I've got some really good contacts where you might be able to get some contracts and we'd be delighted to welcome you all along. We provide tea and coffee and donuts and things nice, nice like that. We kind of need to wait until we know how many are coming before we know where it'll be. It'll be in Belfast on that Saturday morning. And we're specifically looking for people who go, we've got a list, if you go to 10by9.com forward slash help, we've got a list of things. And if you're saying, I can help with that, that'd be great. And if none of those fit you, you can go, no, I can help with something else. But we'd, re we'd particularly like for that meeting, people who go, I know that I can give you a hand. Um, so like if we get 10 people turning up to that and 10 people who go, yeah, I, we're not going to exhaust you with um, demanding your help. But if you go, yeah, I can lend something here or make some contacts, we'd be thrilled because we're really delighted with the way this is growing. And we do think that there's something inexhaustible about people's stories, none of which comes from us, but all of which comes from you. And so we're delighted that you give us so much help and we're thrilled to, with the opportunity to be able to grow this a little bit. So 10by9.com forward slash help and you'll see the information there. And your email address will come to us and that way we'll, we'll email everybody who's signed up to that with the actual location once we know how many people are interested. So Paul will introduce the next story, but thanks very much for all your support. We're so excited to be at this stage. And just to be very clear, Tim and I will always be free, no matter what. So a big 10 by 9 welcome for Louise Cullen. So 
So I think cat owners would generally agree that cats and Christmas trees don't really mix terribly well. Actually, cats and me shouldn't mix. I'm really allergic. But what's a little gasping for breath and being blinded by itchy eyes between furry friends and their slaves? We've owned three cats in the decade we've been married, and we've largely escaped the feline festive fun in that time. And that's because number one cat is Tree What Tree Madge, and that's short for Her Majesty Empress Puss, Queen of the Universe. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what happens when your husband works from home alone most of the time. <laughs> Madge originally belonged to a neighbour. She saw my husband, fell in love and moved in. The cat, obviously, not the neighbour. <laughs> she was soon joined by Dobby and little Tabby from a shelter in Oma. Now, he had a condition which meant he fell down a lot. We only had him for three years, but we still think he was the best cat ever. And not that the others know that. We now have two. We actually care for about seven, but that's a different story. Madge the Tortie is still with us, and we also have a three-year-old white cat called Merlin. And yes, he can here. Because of the cats, we're an artificial tree family, and this is the story of our first Christmas with Merlin. So having trailed the tree and its accoutrements down from the attic and then ignored it for two days, I finally got round to assembling it on a soggy Monday afternoon. Madge was then five years old. Now she tends to regard the tree with distinct disdain, the same way she regards anything that isn't actually feeding her at the time. The late great Dobby, he loved the tree, but due to his various disabilities, he couldn't jump high enough to do any damage to it, or more importantly, to himself. So he was content with just tugging at the two or three ornaments we deliberately hung low enough for him. But Merlin, just five months old on his first Christmas, was an entirely different kidling of fish. As soon as I pulled the parceled branches from the box, Merlin's green eyes lit up. I swear he was purring to the tune of it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. <laughs> I put the central pole together, screwed the stand in place, and carefully set the first branch A into its slot. It was as if the hook sliding in was the starter's gun being fired. Swipe, swipe, leap, scratch, chew, jump, swipe, swipe, swipe. Still, ever the optimist, I battled on. I eventually got all six rungs of the branches slotted in, despite the four-footed Olympic wall climber using the frame for practice. And then I started to spread the pines out to fill the spaces. In the words of Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, big mistake, huge. <laughs> Doing this achieved nothing more than making my hands part of the temptation, and thus fair game for little searching and scratching claws. So once I stemmed the worst of the bleeding and the antihistamines had kicked in, again, pretty allergic to cats, I set about actually decorating the thing. May I refer you, dear listener, to my earlier film quote. Before the lights even went near the tree, untangling them became a ballet of bulbs and bouncing kitten. Finally straightened out, I mounted them on the branches. Instantly, they became gym ropes for my little wannabe athlete to swing from by the paw. Next came the baubles, which taunted him so he had no option but to deploy a jump-clutch-swipe combo that ensured their hasty departure from the branch and dramatic interface with the ground. 
and oh his delight when I painstakingly rehung each and every ornament in the vain hope they would stay where they were put for longer than 15 seconds. But eventually, apparently, even little kittens get bored with jumping and pulling and chasing around the floor brightly coloured things they'd never seen before. Exhausted by his endeavours, Merlin then decided rung B of the branches made a superb resting place on a par with his soft radiator bed. Tail a dangle, he assumed a languid position spanning branches B3, 4 and 5, and that gave him ample space to play with the lights. After watching him for a bit, I decided peace had probably been restored. I really am such an optimist. And it was safe to get on with the tidying up. So I turned my back for a few seconds to pack away all the bags the decorations had been in. Then I turned back to find one set of lights had gone out. What on earth? Had I not heard Merlin electrocuting himself? Surely there'd have been a bang, an outraged yowl, maybe even an airborne cat, with the trip switch not have plunged the whole house into darkness. Then a little white paw extended from level two of the Christmas tree. A detailed inspection showed he'd managed to dislodge a bulb from its housing. So bulb replaced, lights rearranged, all back on and purring was resumed. The wise decision was taken that Merlin would not be left on his own with the tree. You'll note we were still actually determined to have a tree at this point. We had several Benny Hill moments trying to catch Merlin and get him out of the living room. At least we all got plenty of exercise ahead of the gluttony of Christmas. Later we sat down to watch the telly. Granted access once again, Merlin was playing it cool, taking up his customary position on the back of the sofa from where he could gaze adoringly at the new toy in the bay window. Cam descended. So when we heard at first we thought it was part of the sound effects of the film we were watching, but the on-screen scenes changed, and yet still, it went on. What was it? Where was it coming from? Well, that would be from behind the sofa. It turned out to be little kitty teeth grinding on twinkling light bulbs. Perhaps narrowly escaping death by electricity earlier had given him a taste for adrenaline and extreme sports. There was only one thing for it. By nine o'clock that night, the tree had been denuded of lights. Despite the removal of the electric attraction, it had still been assaulted so many times, the star on top was emulating a dying white dwarf, listing markedly to starboard and taking several pine twiggy bits with it. The lower three rungs of the branches were bauble-less, while those on the upper tiers did nothing more than present a pleasing challenge to a kitten obviously training for an Everest bid. After rehanging the decorations roughly 2.4 million times, I decided it was unlikely I would again see my little hand-painted hand drummer boy dangling from a branch, and the tree became entirely naked. It was too embarrassing to open the curtains to let people see this dark and brooding shape looming in the window and occasionally shaking slightly as if possessed each time it came under attack. As for the cuddly Santa and Rudolph that marked the extent of the rest of our decorations, their prospects were about as bleak as the tree. That was three years ago. 
Merlin's a big boy cat now, and he's mostly grown out of his fascination with the tree. I haven't grown out of my cat allergy, but we live in perpetual optimism. We can now actually have a tree every year with a little bit of care. But I'll always remember the Christmas that went dark and the hyperactive kitten who still lights up our lives. Okay, we have had some brilliant first-timers tonight. Thank you, uh, Louise. If they can do it, anybody can do it. That's the, the, the message we're trying to get out there. So when you see a theme, if you've never been up here, but that theme speaks to you, go for it. Get in touch with us, let us know. Our final first-timer is Laura Kelly. There's been a lot of pets in our family. There was a suicide goldfish that perhaps unaware of how things play out, used to jump out of the goldfish bowl and into the toilet. Why we had fish in the bathroom, I still don't know. Or the Chinese dwarf hamsters who ate each other. I walked into the room one morning before school to see the mother hamster happily gnawing away on her newborn babies. Scarred for life. Or the guinea pigs who had to go to a fat camp due to my alcoholic father overfeeding them. Every time he had taken a drink and walked past their cage, he'd spot the football and generously top it up. We've also had a gecko who travelled from the coast of Africa to the south of Ireland and stowed away in our luggage, smugly revealing himself to us once we were back home and unpacking. The ultimate goal was a dog. A big commitment and not something to enter into lightly. My mother hated dogs. She'd been bitten by one as a child and knew it would be left to her to look after. My father, well, you remember the guinea pig story. <laughs> Let's move to 2007. My parents had separated, thankfully not over the guinea pigs. My sweet, sweet grandmother, with whom I was extremely close to, had passed away after a short illness and a series of unfortunate events had resulted in my own ill health. Ill health substantially worsened and led to be an air ambulance to a London hospital where I would spend the next lot of months. My morale was low and I'd given up. My mother, at her wit's end, presented me with an offer I couldn't resist. Get better and you can get a dog. Knowing how much my mum hates dogs, this was momentous. Clearly, the flowers and chocolates approach that most people bring to the hospital wasn't going to cut it. The next six months was a battle of navigating myself onto a road to recovery and on the 23rd of June 2008, I went to collect what I would soon realise was my non-NHS prescribed medication, a Cavalier King Charles black and tan eight-week-old dog called Bailey. It felt appropriate that she was the runt of the litter, the one no one wanted. At that point in my life, I too felt like the runt of life's litter, but I wanted her. I was loath to admit it, but I needed her. I was by no means better, but I was well enough to have been discharged from an inpatient ward to outpatients and my dear mother had faith that this little dog would be the tonic my heart needed. I had numbed myself to everything around me in order to cope with life's heartache. But over the last 10 years, this lasagna-loving, fridge-door-opening, loud-snoring dog has slowly melted my heart. She's taught me how to love and be loved. When I was unable to look after myself, she was there reminding me that she needed fed, walked and cared for. In turn, I began to feed, walk and take care of myself. 
albeit without the lead or need for dog bags. <laughs> At my lowest, when I couldn't find a single reason to keep going, she was there. When I couldn't bear to look at myself, never mind love myself, she was able to give me the love I needed. She was the sense of stillness on my lap, choosing that exact time to look me in the eye or bat my bony thigh with her tail affectionately. When leaving the house seemed insurmountable, she'd lure me to the back door to let her out. Not content with leaving her to potter about, she'd insist that I sat outside while she roamed the plant beds. From there, it was to the end of the road and then the beach, and then the mountains. Walks became a daily occurrence and opened up possibilities. She also served as my security. When anxiety consumed me, she was beside me on those walks. As tiny as she is, she has this fearless character, some call it stupidity, and overprotective nature. To this day, as a 10-year-old dog with her grade five heart murmur and loss of hearing, she'll still jump in front of me when a dog or human approaches. She's taught me patience and loyalty. I remember one low point when I was ready to quit. I had it all planned out. I would drive to my cousin's house in Donegal. No one would know. And when it was done, the neighbours would hear her barking and they'd ring my family and they could look after her. Simple, right? You see, I'm not an irresponsible dog owner. I knew she would need a home, but despite initial resistance, my mother had grown fond of her. Secretly, she was new. I knew she was what my mum needed as well. My mother is the strongest woman I know, but years of painting on a brave face had resulted in grief seeping out of her soul. Bailey had been slowly worming her way into her heart and helping mum to live and love again. It was Bailey's time to go to a new person. It's the right thing to do, my broken brain had decided. It's the selfless thing to do, my broken brain had determined. Back in Donegal, we went to the beach. But for some reason, Bailey refused to walk, instead jumping up alongside me as if to get into my arms, the only time she's ever not wanted to walk. Giving up, I returned to the house frustrated at this delinquent dog. Good to see those puppy training classes had paid off. Why won't you leave me alone? I yelled at her through tears. She sat on the floor, obediently looking up at me, not breaking her gaze. I sat down while I worked out my plan of action, angry at her relentless loyalty. No sooner had I sat, she jumped onto my lap, worming her way up to my chest like a bird stalking its prey, again not breaking her eye contact. She exhaled onto my chest, content. And then it hit. My pain was colossal, but hers would have been just as worse, and so too would have been my mother's and my brother's. I drove home that night, her beside me on the car seat, car seat, snoring. I truly believe dogs are special, and I don't tell you this story to insist that everyone who's struggling or ill should get a dog and our mental health statistics will disappear overnight. I tell you this story because for me, this dog's simplistic view of life has taught me so much. For so long, I selfishly knew that I needed Bailey. She was there to make me feel better. Feeding her and taking her for walks was just the payment for that. I was so entrenched in my own recovery that I didn't realise that she needed me too. Thankfully, I'm a lot better now, and at my best, she's been around the country with me as we explore and get lost and make up for lost time. But on the days I struggle to breathe underneath the weight of grief, she gets it, and she's there, luring me to the back door to sit with her outside while she roams the plant beds. <laughs>